Good evening. Hi, all. Uh, thanks for joining. Uh, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you with us for yet another Thinker's Dialogue. And we have a very special guest uh, today. In fact, I must say a very special guest and a friend. Uh, in fact, a friend who I met in uh, Vermont uh, many, many years back. And it was thanks to Stuart uh, Hart, uh, who is actually going to be part of this program as well in the coming weeks. And that's when we met. And we, I think it was over... Uh, a glass of heady topper beer that we had actually met and then we, we just clicked and it, it's just been a delightful friendship and it's, it's just been such an honor to know Christian and of course uh, I've always seen him as somebody who is uh, a nut or a crazy uh, guy uh, but then somebody who's absolutely brilliant uh, very understated at points in time and I, I think he becomes invisible at points in time but very understated but one of the most brilliant people I've actually met. Uh, beyond that, of course, like he, he's done some uh, uh, things in terms of like uh, he's the founder of Double Loop uh, Marketing. He's uh, uh, done a lot of work with Philip Kotler. In fact, the uh, idea that we're going to talk about today has been something which has been inspired by Philip Kotler. They work together on it. Uh, in fact, uh, he's also a founder of an economic or an ecosystem strategy consulting firm, and he's done some amazing sets of projects, the most significant of them being a $300 uh, house project. And then, of course, fixed capitalism and the Wicked Seven project. That's what he is. And uh, without, and one more thing, he's actually on the Thinkers 50 radar. That means he's one of the upcoming, uh, what I call, uh, thinkers of the world. And probably he's going to have a transformational experience or a transformational effect in the world. Uh, so here he is, uh, Christian Sarkar. Christian, thanks a lot for joining. And I think I must say that I cherish our friendship and knowing each other. It's, it's been such a delight to know you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, for man. Thanks. Well, I remember meeting you and sitting there going, we were falling asleep at a lecture uh, together in one of those lectures. So we started cracking jokes under our breaths and I think that kept us awake. But I'm actually talking to Stuart in, a, in another hour and a half. So I'll, I'll mention th this to him as well. No, but, absolutely. Uh, so I, I think you're just trying to disclose too much that we, we were the backbenchers at some kind of some conference or a group together, and we were just being nasty with the professors, the teachers out there. <laughs> but that's what creative people will end up doing all the time. Well, that's one way to stay awake. You know, you got to find a way to stay awake. And sometimes it's not exactly the subject that keeps you awake, but the, but the you know, comedy next to you, you know, so we had a, we had a lot of fun. Uh, absolutely. So uh, in one way, you're trying to suggest that I'm a comedian, but thanks a lot for that. <laughs> but Christian, thanks a lot. But we'll quickly dive into the uh, conversation, you know, like, uh, Christian, I think we, we have to start with this uh, very important time in history. Like, if you really look at the last 12 to 14 months, they, they have been catastrophic for the world. And uh, if you really look at the last uh, few months, they, they have been transformational. Uh, they have been uh, very problematic. Uh, and it has had impact on lives of people. Uh, and in terms of many, many ways, it has increased inequality, it has increased disparity, and it is, uh, you know, what do you call, bringing to the fore the problems the world faces. How do you really look at this problem? What, what's your thinking uh, around this? Sure. So um, I'm thinking this is sort of a dress rehearsal for what's coming, that, that COVID is actually the, the soft pitch and that it's gonna get a lot harder actually as we go further. And that's not exactly the most optimistic view in the world, but it, I think it's more realistic than, than these other uh, visions of rosiness that everything's gonna open up and everything's gonna go back to normal. It's not gonna be a new normal. And in this great reset crap we hear about, that's, that's a misnomer as well. So what, what we're really gonna to have to do is figure out, okay, how is it that, how is mankind going to face these existential problems. And of course, the number one here is the death of nature, you know, climate change, pollution, the fact that, you know, 3% uh, of, 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 uh, of, of the animals walking on earth are actually wild. Everything else is, uh, you know, food for us. Um, so we, we've, we've really, you know, reached that fork in the road, you know, Buckminster Fuller had this thing about the fork in the road and that, you know, human beings until the last minute, it, this is, it's going to be a final exam that are we going to be able to, uh, you know, get on the fork that goes to hope or the a path that goes to oblivion. And, uh, and he called it utopia. But at this point, you forget utopia, we're just trying to survive. So I think we have, a, you know, we've already gone down the wrong fork in the road. 
and it's you are here, you know, there's an X that says you are here. And, and the point of no return, depending if you're an optimist or a pessimist, if you're a pessimist, you've already passed that point. If you're an optimist, it's ahead of you. So I'm hoping, you know, we're, it's ahead of us a little bit and that we can still sort of uh, fix a few things and really face the problems that we have. So, so I'll tell you another, I'll give you a story. Like yesterday, you know, in England, there was a big story and all of Europe, that basically soccer is going to be changed forever. Why? You know the story, right? The Super League. And basically within 48 hours, there was this activist, you know, coalition of players, managers, fans, every, you know, the customers, everybody revolted and said, that's not going to happen. And boom, it didn't happen. I wish we had that same kind of passion for another kind of football, you know, our planet. That's what the, I mean, that's the football that we need to save. Uh, we can save soccer as well, but the fact that we don't seem to have a sense of urgency, that we're saying 2050 before we actually do something or before we get the numbers right. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So with that in mind, I'll, I'll go back to where we started this thing. So the roots of this are in the $300 house, which was 10 years ago, 11 years ago, we had this project, which was basically saying, how can we create, bring innovative minds together to rethink affordable housing for the very poor? And at that time, we actually learned this lesson, which was a very important lesson, that the problem is not technical. The problem is not a solutions problem because actually all these problems can be solved. The reason we're not solving them is because of power, the status quo, the people who are running things and corruption. And it doesn't matter where in the world you are, whether it's Nigeria, Haiti, US, you know, India, it's going to be the same equation. The players will be different and, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be a slightly, you know, there'll be a local flavor to it. But in general, we have very similar issues. So fast forward another uh, about in 2018, Phil and I, Phil Kotler, and I wrote this book on brand activism. And the idea there was, you know, let's encourage companies to be more like the Tatas and the Unilevers, you know, where, where, they, where they actually go out of their way to use their products and their supply chains to do better things in the world, to make things better for the local communities. And, and so we said, okay, let's look at that. And we ended up with these, the idea of brand activism, which says that CSR is too slow. And what we really need to do is solve the world's most urgent problems. So out of that, we came up with these uh, seven urgent problems. We actually have a list of some 250 things. Now these are all the problems. And so we kind of boiled it down to seven issues. The first one, death of nature, you know, happening all around us. Second one, inequality, income inequality, gender inequality, racism, all kinds of inequality, right? Uh, race, uh, prejudice against the differently abled people. Uh, okay. Next one, hate and conflict. You know, this is sort of our universal, how we polarize each other. It doesn't matter what country you're in, we've seen across the world, all kinds of polarizing strategies that are being used by governments, by politicians, by businesses even, to drive people apart so that they can be uh, manipulated a little easier. Power and corruption, that's, that's, that's sort of one of the wickedest of the wickedest problems, which is how do you get people to change who actually can make the difference, but really don't want to or for selfish reasons. And who, who do you appeal to? So, you know, we were I was chatting with this guy. He said, well, there's only about 200 people in the world who actually hold the keys to the future. And if we could convince even a third of them or even, you know, a quarter of them to change, we might be able to do something. And, and so that's a, a, another sort of angle on this, which is how do you get those you know, 200 billionaires to sort of see the world differently. Uh, so maybe that might be an approach that we're, we're looking at. Then you have the future of work and technology, you know, that digital everything has actually, instead of making things better, it's actually created a wider abyss, a wider gap between the digital haves and the digital have-nots. So even in Silicon Valley, that gap has widened. You know, you have a few smart companies that are monopolizing, let's say, the digital world. And uh, COVID basically just proved that because all of them did really well while the rest of the economy was tanking and you know people couldn't afford anything. But of course, Amazon kept growing 
all these guys kept doing better. Then you have health and livelihood. I mean, health, of course, is public health. And COVID shows us how ill-equipped we are for a pandemic. And, and of course, Bill Gates, you, we've all seen the video with Bill Gates warning us about the pandemic. And for that, you know, we have at the end of our brand activism book, we actually have a letter to Bill Gates saying, hey, dude, here's what you really need to do. Instead of working on solving all these minor uh, uh, issues like micro issues one by one, like vaccines and things, if you just worked on the big issue, which is why do our politicians actually not do their jobs? If you could take money out of politics, that actually might solve a lot of problems for in, in a sustainable way. So that, that was sort of our message to Bill Gates. I don't think he read our books, you know, but that's another story. Um, by the way, the Indian version of that book is coming out with Penguin here next month. It's going to be a brand activism from uh, purpose to action, Indian edition. So we have some Indian examples and some stuff. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. Well, I think um, we're very much looking forward to the book. We should have a conversation on that once it comes out. No, we can have a conversation right now too. But, uh, but, but that's the thing. See, what we're trying to do from the top is convince businesses and you know, some businesses are doing this. You know, in their everyday life, they're actually looking at uh, you know, what makes my product more sustainable? How do I green my supply chain? How, how, how do I pay my workers better? How do I uh, include, you know, what are the strategies for inclusivity? How do I get more suppliers? How do I bring small farmers into my, uh, into my supply chain? That kind of thing. But unfortunately, they're too far and too, uh, too few of those companies. So that's why we went to this Wicked 7, which we're saying is kind of a bottom-up horizontal innovation project and the goal of this project, to put it bluntly, is to draw a map that says, look, we can't even drive on this road because we don't even know how many potholes there are. We don't even know where the cliffs are because we've been, you know, when we look at these problems, we look at them individually. So if you look at the UN SDGs, you go SDG number 27. I mean, I'm kidding, but let's say, you know, each SDG has its own little boundaries. Mm -hmm. And, and the, what the $300 house taught us was that these boundaries, the solution to your problem is always outside your boundary. And so you've got to find a way to attack all of them simultaneously. So our goal is draw this map of all these seven wicked problems mapped out what all the causes are. And I'll tell you about that also, the approach we're using is a little uh, novel and new. Uh, I don't think it's ever been uh, done before, so it's a little different, but it's actually not that uh, esoteric. It's actually pretty common sense stuff. And But I, I want to come to the last one, which is population and migration. So you know how we're having population and migration issues today? People going, oh my God, we're getting immigrants from North Africa. This is in Europe, right? Oh my God, uh, immigrants from uh, Middle East and North Africa. Well, in the next 10 years, they're projected to be some 200 million people who are coming instead of less than a million a year that, that it is today. They're actually projecting 200 million. And what do you expect when the temperature in the Middle East is gonna be something like 50 degrees Celsius, you know, or 55? I mean, what are you gonna do then? You can't even live. So, so we really have, and, and by the way, the same crisis is gonna be repeated in, in, in the India as well, where let's say, you know, Bangladesh, if it goes underwater, those people aren't going to just sit there. They're going to come north, right? Or they're going to go west. Uh, so we, we do have a problem across the world because the U.S. has this problem too. And at exactly the right time, in, in other words, at this time when we need to come together to actually work on these in a serious way, what are we doing? Quarreling, fighting, being petty, finding uh, ways to not talk to each other and actually bring back old hatreds. Uh, that's what we're doing. So this is sort of the response we do, uh, we have when things, times get tough. And if you look at the human uh, species, uh, sort of a history of our species over time, it's when we've collaborated that we've actually created sort of new value and actually made it to the next phase. And, and of course, every time we have war, I mean, look at, I mean, if you look at the Mahabharata and, uh, you know, I mean, that Kurukshetra, right? Well, I mean, we, we have these myths, right? That that thing, that was a nuclear war, glass on the field, you know, I even went looking for that glass on the field, okay? <laughs> but didn't find it. But, um, but my point is we have to come together. And so the goal of this Wicked 7 project, in a way, is to draw a map so that we can all come together, find the language, and I'll talk to, about that for a minute, 
find a language that we can speak together to discuss what the issues are, which is not political, not based on some ideology or religion. So we're asking people, hey, how do you depoliticize this conversation? You know, it doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what uh, class you are. It doesn't matter what ideology you have. You know, you're still going to die if, if, if we, uh, you know, don't get serious about this. So, so that's sort of the common uh, thread with all of this is how do we bring people together? And, and we don't even care uh, in terms of what your organization is. In other words, if you're a, an individual or a student or a, you know, business professor or a school or a NGO. So, so we're inviting everyone. And what's happened, we're in the first uh, month of our first challenge, which is the death of nature. And we have a working group of some 25 kids, uh, not just kids, uh, but 25 people, some kids. And we've been working on mapping these problems out. So it's been very interesting. We're getting some very interesting data. Every point on our chart is backed up with data and uh, you know, reports. And you know, we're not just saying, oh, let's pick and choose our data. We're saying, let's actually examine three or four or five you know, sources for each point so we can verify that this is actually true. And the end result is going to be this Wikipedia 1.0, which we put online for everybody to sort of participate. Then what we do is, okay, now that we found what the issues are, how do we do two things? One is stop them from happening, if that's possible. If that's not possible, okay, how do we find a way to mitigate the suffering and the, the result on the outcomes of what is happening? How do you mitigate that? So that's sort of the, so that's sort of the, and then from that, we're going to uh, do a, it's like a zoom in, zoom out thing. At the top level, we'll have this abstract thing, but then we're going to be zooming in to specific projects that people are already coming to us uh, saying, hey, uh, here's sort of the problem that we have with, uh, you know, I have a company that's innovating in this space where we're building wheelchair uh, automation, things that can take uh, handicapped people up the stairs. And, I can't, and we've already built the thing, but we can't find a way to, uh, you know, grow. How do we make this grow? So these kinds of innovations that are happening, and by the way, in India, we have, of course, uh, Anil Gupta, you know, you know about him, right? The Sristi guy, right? So it's that kind of approach that we want to follow, you know, as we want to have this grassroots thing where we're able to find these innovations, plug them into the, into the uh, bigger map, and then basically cross-pollinate, you know, introduce one solution to the other side introduce, you know, companies, individuals, ideas, and that's sort of what is the breakthrough uh, sort of way of doing this that, that we learned from this $300 house. By the way, the $300 house is still going on. You know, we have a guy, Henny Boats, uh, who was one of our contestants in the $300 house. He is, uh, a few years ago, was recognized as the future of construction in, 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 in the developing world. And he had this very innovative type housing uh, technique, which by the way, I did introduce to some of the Indian companies here, but of course they didn't uh, get into it. And it is a shame because now he's in about 20 something countries with this affordable housing technique that he has. And it's that kind of innovation that we need to embrace and find ways to make a public good as, as opposed to turn it into just a pure profit play where of course that's one of the, the larger companies are not thinking let's say in terms of the public good, they're thinking more in terms of what, what, where's my private profit happening. So we've got to find a balance between, you know, here's some public scale things that we can do because that's infrastructure of course is a public thing and should be. And then here's some private things that we can do on top of that. And you saw what the Chinese did. I mean, of course you have extremes, right? You have completely market driven stuff, which is all private. Then you have the state stuff, which is China saying, hey, Alibaba, you're now part of the Chinese government. Thanks. You know, thanks for building that. Shake hands. Bye bye. You know, this is now Chinese government property. That's, you know, not exactly a way to encourage innovation either. So what's the balance between that? And I think there is a balance. There's going to be some hybrid models where we decide what's the extent of what is a public good. And then where does the profit stuff ha start happening? instead of saying it's all profit or all state driven. So we've got to find a better uh, uh, balance between that. You look like you have a question. Yeah. Yes, uh, oh, I have too many of them actually, but yeah. I'll, I'll start with one of the points that you had actually said to begin with. And you said it is going to get a lot harder as we go along. 
And that's more like a doomsday prophecy. And uh, why, why are you really saying that? Uh, what do you foresee that which is going to make our lives harder or existence of humanity harder? Yeah. Well, it's because the overlapping, you know, that each one of these things, if it happened one at a time, would not be such a problem. But when they happen all together, then we're really in trouble. So that's what I see. So if you have, let's say, climate change, plastic pollution, inequality, you know, civil unrest, people beating each other up based on some religious fanaticism or something, uh, you know, divisions between uh, technology where, you know, the rich kind of hide in their fancy houses and everybody else is milling around, uh, you know, homeless. When all of these things hit together at the same time, we can't even handle one of them. You know, so that's what I'm trying to say is that we actually have, it's going to be a lot harder than we think it is. And that's why we're sleeping at the wheel. And we're beginning to see this now. COVID is actually showing us that these things are interlinked and look at what's happening because now we've seen an increase in the people who are homeless. We've seen the economy going south for the people, but doing really well for the rich. So the rich have gotten richer and the billionaires have gotten even more money now. And, and, and so we've got a fundamentally unequal world, which is fragmenting and getting even more unequal. And so this overlap, we feel, is going to be something that we aren't going to be able to solve unless we start focusing on how these things are interlinked. And of course, number one is the death of nature. Mm -hmm. And when I say death of nature, I mean, you know, the fact that everything we're going to eat and breathe is going to be, uh, you know, have plastics in it, have poisons in it. Uh, our soil is toxic. We're losing the quality of our soil, uh, food insecurity, uh, you know, the loss of uh, deforestation. I mean, this, I mean the, the evidence is endless. The problem is when we're sitting in our business world, we're just focused on, you know, here's my market and here's my problem and I can solve that. But you don't realize that if society goes to hell, you know, your business isn't going to exist anymore either. And COVID has begun to show us that, but that's why I say it's going to get worse. Now, am I being a doomsday uh, kind of negative guy? I am. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want people to see that this is real and that it, it's not going to help us to go, everything's fine. You know, let's, let's just uh, enjoy what we have while the rest of the world falls apart. And so we really do have... Uh, 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 Add the global need for, somebody added a comment, a comment for drinkable, safe water. No kidding. In fact, that is part of the, you know, when you look at the Wicked Seven, one of them is health and livelihood. And that includes clean water, housing, you know, food security, all of that's part of the health and livelihood. So definitely. In fact, we have so, uh, several advisors. So one of the things we did is we said, who are the guys who know a lot about this stuff? Let's bring them into this. And so we've kind of dragged a lot of these people into our little advisory group, not because maybe they agree with everything we say, because we don't know what we're doing, right? We, we're just saying, hey, we really don't know what we're doing, but we're trying to learn and we're gonna learn from each other. So that's sort of the, the foundation. So I call it ecosystematic learning. It's actually the same approach we use with the $300 house, where you basically create a purpose and then people start showing up who will help you understand better what you need to do. So it's not based on, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Christian, so you, you know, like uh, you, you made a very important point here on death of nature, but just a curious question, you know, like this is a point in time uh, when we are losing more uh, species than any other time in the history of the world. Yeah. Uh, it is something like what we are saying is that we are already on in midst of the sixth mass uh, extinction. Extinction, right. Yeah. So how do you really look at this? Like, where, where do you see we are going? Because when you say only 3% is wild and everything is food, that means we as humans are effectively causing so much of anxiety Absolutely. in nature. And Absolutely. probably COVID is a way to really send a message maybe, or is it right. a, a thing that, oh, yes, you are going to get out of the system because the nature will survive in spite of humanity. So if you remember what Stuart Hart's blog was called, it was called The Voice of the Planet. So we could make the case that COVID is the voice of the planet telling us shape up or ship out because the planet's going to remain. It's just we aren't going to be here because we didn't heed the voice of the planet. So the planet's going to say, well, you know, we're not going to listen to you anymore, humans. And so we really have an opportunity here in the next 10 years to decide if we're going to uh, continue moving forward and have have a human uh, species or or be part of the ma mass extinction that comes. 
So I, I mean, it's that serious. And, you know, we don't seem to, we don't think there's no urgency, you know, we're like, eh, you know, 2050, we might do something, you know, okay, we'll do off, offset some carbon stuff, you know, we'll, you know, so we, we really have a irresponsible uh, sort of management. By the way, that's another book that Phil and I are working on. It's called Misleadership, uh, which is the idea that leaders who are able to make a difference aren't. And the reason they aren't making a difference is because they're too concerned either with themselves or narrow selfish interests where the leader's agenda is not an agenda that actually uh, is good for humanity. It's an agenda that actually hurts humanity. And, and, and of course the, you know, the British Super League was one example of that in a very minor way because it, it basically says that a few handful of clubs, a handful of uh, business people with the right banking partner, in this case, JP Morgan Chase and Jamie Dimon and Ed Woodward, you know, who's the guy from Manchester United, uh, but he used to work for Chase. They decided, hey guys, you know, we're not making enough money. So let's forget the rest of the world, create our own super league and everybody else can go to, go to hell. And we're just gonna make money ourselves. And because we have the best teams. And by the way, we can't be demoted. There's no merit in this thing. It's just us because we have a big name. I mean, what the height of arrogance and stupidity is unbelievable. And yet, this is actually the business model that we teach people in business school, that this is the way to actually create value for society. But we don't think of creating value for society. We think of creating value for the company and for the shareholders and for, you know, and now we're saying multiple stakeholders and that kind of thing, which is nice, but it has to be society and the planet. It can't just be, you know, a few stakeholders. And by the way, there's another lesson here, which is you'll find interesting, Amit, is because why did the German teams not join this circus, right? The reason they didn't join is because they're 51% owned by the community. So they're not, they're not owned by some uh, you know, American billionaire who doesn't care about the game, doesn't even know the game, but is just doing this as a fun investment thing. So that's the problem. Uh, fundamentally, that's actually the root cause of why we're in this mess, because our entire economy is based on a false presumption, which is that nature doesn't count and is not accounted for in our system. So you, a, a forest has no value until you chop it down, right? That's then, then, then it's wood. Now it's, now it's adding to your GDP. So you kill it and you add it to your GDP. You keep it alive and, and you have, you know, you have, you, you've hurt your GDP. So we're rewarding people to kill for killing the planet and making it inhospitable for all of us. I mean, I grew up in Delhi. I remember Delhi in 19, I'll, I'll, I'll show you how old I am here. But I remember when I was a kid, man, we could, we could go to Lodi Gardens on Sunday, blue skies, always blue, fresh air. We'd run around, I mean, all day long. It was just a beautiful world. Of course, there weren't hardly any cars and this was like a, but I wanna say, you know, what progress have we made? You know, all we've done is filled our cities with garbage, the skies with garbage. And now we're like living in a house where we're watching some fancy TV, but we can't even go outside because we can't bring, I mean, so that's really the question is, do we really want to live in a world where we can't even do anything or we don't even have a world to live in? And, and I, I feel like, you know, this is sounding so stupid, you know, it, it's so inane, this, this kind of line of thinking. And, and, and yet people go, you know, business doesn't have, that's not part of business. So we don't want to talk about it. And, and, and I think that's the fundamental problem here. And Phil and I, I mean, I mean, Philip Cocker is the father of modern marketing. We just had a discussion a few days ago about demarketing which is the idea. And then, by the way, Phil wrote this article on demarketing in Harvard Business Review in 1971, where he said that we need to find ways to market to people so they consume less, not more. So, you know, like you, you said that there is something called as misleadership. Yeah. Could you give me an example here of misleadership? Almost everyone. So this goes back to Peter Drucker, okay? Where Peter Drucker says, He's very highly suspicious of anybody who's a leader. Why? Because all the great leaders that he's known have been charlatans, crooks. And really, he gives the example of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. Those were great leaders. So uh, they were leaders who convinced their population to do something that was not in their best interest, that was not in the common good. 
it was in the interest of, let's say, the state or a few. Uh, so that it's the agenda of the leader that's important. So when Jack Welch says that, hey, maximize shareholder value and we should outsource everything to China, what was he doing there? Because basically where Jack Welch went, the rest of the business world went at that time. So when he made, you can say that Jack Welch, in a sense, is to blame for America's demise. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm painting a kind of cartoony picture, but that is the case. If you look at shareholder value maximization as the thing, and you got to be number one or number two in your business, otherwise you outsource it or get rid of it, that creates an economy of only winners and everybody else is losers. So it creates a, a very shallow, uh, untethered economy that's not tied to any local roots. So that's another thing. How do you build an economy that actually is connected to the, lo uh, the local community? So in Germany, we have a completely different model. We have the Mittelstand. There's 500 companies that are mid-sized large companies, but they're not giant monopolies. They're, you know, they're really good at what they do, let's say making Tetra packs or one of them, right? You, you make these plastic packagings that everybody uses to put their milk in, to put their fruit juices in, all that kind of stuff. But that Tetra pack is really uh, very specialized, world-class, but not a giant company where they're gonna kill everything and they're local. They're actually based in you know, a specific state with, with a, a community that they support. So that I think is the future. So I'll give you another example. In India, uh, you go, okay, how can we do this in India? How can we create some kind of uh, economy that helps the local economies flourish? So there's a, so I'm going to tell you, I'm, now I'm actually an advisor to a company that is building a thing called Country as a Platform. This is in, in Bangalore and, and Mumbai. What they're doing is building a platform that brings together the nonprofits, the, the NGOs, the individual entrepreneur, the farmers markets, the industrial markets, the different kinds of markets, and the government, and puts it all on a platform where every transaction is blockchain enabled and traceable. So nothing is, there's no leakage anywhere. And it's being done as a public good. So it's not trying to make the profits that an Amazon or an Alibaba would. So it's more of a local based, you know, we'll license the software for, for your state. So you could run everything in your state and, and use it as a digital post office. So it's like an infrastructure based play as opposed to a Silicon Valley, let's get rich quick kind of scheme. But it's, it's really saying, let's bring the buyers and sellers together, but in a way that's not actually uh, taking an unfair uh, cut out of every transaction. So if you think about it, what, what is a credit card? Seriously, what is a credit card? A credit card is a tax, but that tax goes to the bank instead of the government. So what if you could actually do it where that tax, but instead of having like a 2% tax, it was a 0.05% tax on every transaction and it went to the government instead, what would happen? You would be creating public value. You'd actually have some taxes with which to actually fight some stuff. And you would actually bring uh, 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 an infrastructure that every country needs. Even the US needs this and we don't have it. You know, a, a, a digital uh, country as a platform where everybody's on there. So it's, it's like going to the post office instead of saying, hey, here's my post office box or here's my, I'm mailing a letter. Well, I have a product, I need to sell it. My village is good at it. And I can create smart contracts on the fly. So I, on my co-op that I can, I can pull together with five other farmers in my district and create a co-op where we work together to, uh, and, and we share in the transactions and the profits based on you know, our contribution. And all of this is of course mappable because it's blockchain. So that, that company, by the way, is called Istaka Paza, which guess what that means? Blockchain in Sanskrit. And the, the, the Western version of that thing is digital cosmos. So digital-cosmos.com. By the way, they're hosting our Wicked, our Wicked 7 uh, project uh, site, uh, you know, where we're uploading all the designs, they, they're hosting the, the challenge. So that's that, that's nice question. But then what you're really saying is that we there is an urgent need to redefine capitalism the way we are really looking at it. Because if we don't do it, we are really going to go in for a catastrophe the way everything is designed, which is probably- Yeah, no, no, we're going to fragment. We're going to fragment and then it's going to be dishoom dishoom. Everybody's going to be at each other's throats. 
It's very simple. I mean, this recipe for chaos, it's happened a lot. I mean, you can look at what happened in the Balkans, which by the way, there's some more issues in the Balkans just today and yesterday, but you can go look at the Balkans and they have a phrase for this in, in political science. They call it balkanization, you know, <laughs> for that reason. Because every little village thinks they're an independent country and can't talk to the other one because, hey, you know, we're, we're separate from everybody else. So we need to find ways to come together with a common language and a common belief in, you know, we can work together to make things happen and make things better for everyone, or we're going to perish like fools. And, and that's sort of our alternatives. But Christian, when you say, you know, like well, what I hear you say is that you say there are 200 people who are very important uh, yeah. who need to change. Yeah. But when you are saying uh, that oh, those 200 people have to change who are probably the billionaires, and you're also trying to hint at a very different way of looking at capitalistic system or a capitalistic society. And you're saying that it's not about profits at all points in time, it's about society at large. How do you convince them of this? Because wealth accumulation is something like an obsession as well. Of course it is, it's a disease. I mean, you get, it's that, it's, it's basically the same disease that the gold miners had when they went uh, searching for gold, right? Gold fever. You find a little gold, you go nuts, you shoot everybody else around you for a few nuggets of gold. You know, that's, that's what you do. And, and it really is sort of the, brings out the worst in human beings. So if, if we want to live in a society where everybody's under guard with guns all day long, shooting each other because, you know, we're suspicious of everything, or we can have a civil society, which is the whole idea of civilization, there's got to be a balance. And you go, okay, capitalism isn't really the problem. It's how you do capitalism, right? There's American capitalism, there's Chinese capitalism, you know, guess what? The Chinese socialist capitalism is actually beating, you know, independent free market capitalism today. Why is that? Actually, it's for the same reason, it's for corruption. And frankly, communism failed for the same reason that capitalism's failing, corruption. Because guess what? It's the same gunda in all these systems who's running the show, the same goon. It's the same type of person who's, you know, who gets the power and then becomes a dictator. Is the, the difference is, is your CEO a dictator or is your CEO an elected official who is part of, you know, and, and then is it the state or the market that's running things? So where's the balance? So remember what I said in Germany, you know, these companies in Germany can't just do this stuff because they actually have, uh, you know, a, local, a commitment to the local community. And two, on the board, they actually have an employee representative. We don't have that in, in the US. You know, in the US, it's like the owner's rule. But in Germany, you know, that's one reason why the guy on the automaker in, in, in the US is paid 18 bucks an hour and can't compete. And the German guy is getting paid 44 bucks an hour and can't compete. What's that? Obviously, something else is the problem. It's not the worker. That, and we, of course, that's sort of the mantra. Oh, the worker wants everything. We're going to quash the workers. But if you look at McDonald's in Denmark, Okay, the burger costs about a buck more, maybe a buck 50 more. But the guy who's making the burger is getting paid 16 bucks an hour, whereas the guy in, in the US is getting paid seven bucks an hour, 725 or whatever it is. But the burger is the same. And I'm pretty sure the profits are almost the same. You know, it's not like that. So something is wrong in this picture. And Peter Drucker would have said, go check what the executive is making. You know, if you really think about it, what's the ratio between your lowest employee and your uh, CEO? The, the, and, and Peter Drucker's thing was, it's gotta be somewhere between, you know, for nonprofits, somewhere between four and eight, for for-profits, 15. You know what it is today when some of these American companies? A hundred, oh. a thousand. I mean, it'll take you a thousand years to make what, you know, your CEO makes. Imagine that, you'd work, you know, for a thousand year, day, uh, years, you work doing your job and you'll, you'll make what your CEO made this year. But you have to work a thousand years. So this kind of distance is, is unhealthy for everything because what it does is it creates a class of superhumans who are so full of themselves and so separated from reality that this bubble is destructive because basically this kind of wealth and power doesn't it keeps concentrating keeps i mean and imagine when i start using ai to do the same thing so i call that machine capitalism where basically you've taught this these rules to a machine and human beings basically are useless at this point 
So what do we do with them? My machine will make profits for your machine, but who's the customer? And I think that's the thing that you know people have forgotten that you actually have to have a customer who can afford your products. You have to create markets, but you don't create markets by destroying the people or the environment or, or the, the, the ecosystem that it lives in. You actually have to have flourishing communities. And I think that's part of this story as well, is that we've got to find a way to create local. And frankly, this is what happens when you get rid of the monopolistic capitalism and you go, okay, I want local capitalism. And, 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 and that, so there's a whole new equation, even Roger Martin, right, is, is, is gonna talk about that, is about the corporation is obsolete. Because what is the corporate? Okay, now we're slightly going off my wicked seven, but it's part of the same story because it's the narrative. The narrative of the corporation is actually amid the same narrative as the East India Company. You know what that narrative was? Hello, let's go. Get your ships together. We're going to go land on the shore of this savage country. Those guys are rich. We're going to take as much as we can, put it in our ships and bring it back to our home country. And because you're a shareholder, you give me five bucks, I'll give you 5,000 bucks back. Great returns. Now, do we care about what happens to those natives? No. Do we care what happens to that country? No. Heck, we don't mind even conquering that country and ruling it and destroying it. So that, that colonization mentality is still taught in the structure of the corporation. So think about it, Harv value harvesting. What is that? What language is that? Harvesting value, right? Value creation for whom? Not for the people, for the shareholders. Exploiting, how do you exploit the market? I mean, what are the, what are the even our vocabulary is basically uh, the vocabulary of slavery. And then what did the British do? When they went back, guess what they did? They ended up colonizing their own people. They're like, oh, you know, we don't have any brown people to beat up anymore. Let's just beat up on our poor people now. So that's what they did. Indentured servants. So horrible. Yeah. Yeah, I know this is fascinating. In fact, uh, I would just recommend everybody uh, to really listen to the two interactions we've had with uh, Rich, uh, Roger Martin, uh, and uh, uh, William Dalrymple on this. So uh, you, you will probably uh, love yeah, this. Yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. then um, Christian, uh, coming back to this, you know, like just a curious question and probably a little sideline, but makes part of your Wicked Seven as well. You know, like we are facing this very supreme crisis called COVID and enterprises are at one end in terms of creating drugs or vaccines and everything. And there is this whole issue of IP. I do respect the idea of IP without a doubt. But the question here is, that given the circumstances, given the challenges that the world is facing, how do we solve this problem of wealth accumulation, saving lives and everything? Isn't it time that we really look at IP in a different of way? Of course, of course. The whole, I mean, look at Louis Pasteur and, and what he did, right? He just open sourced it. Did he make any money off it? No, there are a lot of people who did that. There are a lot of people who made money off these open source vaccines and open source uh, uh, innov innovations in medical, in healthcare. So part of it is, you know, if we truly wanted to go after this, we could. We could say, hey, you know what? This is a public good. It's a world crisis. This, for the next three years, you know, these vaccines are going to be open source for everybody. We're going to manufacture the heck out of them. And frankly, that is what leadership should have been doing. Instead, they blamed each other, pointed fingers, and did vaccine nationalism, right? Hey, my country comes first, America first, India first, you know, everybody first, and human beings last, basically, and the planet last. So, you know, like, Christian, exactly to your point, uh, I was to speak at an IP event uh, on Monday, uh, and they asked me to speak for IP, and I said, no, I'm not in a position to speak for IP, because this is a humanitarian crisis. And we have to find a way to give this vaccine to everybody. We have to. Well, the it. entire idea so they, of they withdrew IP. the invitation. Uh, they withdrew the invitation. Now, now this is nice. where we are. Yeah. So that that's how it is. But then, just to your point, how do we really fight this battle when people yeah. are just getting paid to say something, or they're creating those lobby groups, which which are again by the billionaires? Right. Well, that's part of the problem. I mean, uh, Michael Porter, right, and Catherine Gale. They have a book called the, uh, the Politics Industry, which basically says we're corrupt, not because we're corrupt, but it's corrupt because it's designed to be corrupt. 
this system is working exactly how it's supposed to work. You know, so what we have is a global IP system, which is uh, designed not to protect the creators of the content or the creators of the, of the thing, but to protect the corporations so they can have a, a sort of an unfair advantage for 75 years, let's say, in terms of, uh, that's obsolete. This stuff's obsolete thinking. So we've got to create a new way and rethink all of this. Um, and, 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 I, and I think it's part, still part of the colonial mentality, this, this, uh, the way IP is done today. And of course, if you go against that, then you're not playing the game of, of the G20. And, and, and if you think about it, that's really what, and if you really say, okay, G20, what is the G20 really? You know what it is, Amit? It's the same thing as those uh, Super League. It's a Super League. The G20 is Arsenal, Manchester United, Manchester City, Juventus, Barcelona, Real Madrid, and they're, they're basically creating a cartel that, that basically makes rules in their favor and keeps everybody else out of the game. That's really what it is. And that's what the G20 is. So we have a fundamental flaw in the way our institutions are organized and set up. And this is not a flaw that's gonna go away. <laughs> Who's going, what dictator ever said, oh, I'm done being a dictator. Ha, here, step in, you know, please take over. You know, I'm done, you know. <laughs> Are you yeah. saying that we will have to go through a revolution of sorts to really set it right, or we're gonna we're gonna go through crises, you know, because revolutions are gonna get put down pretty quickly, you know, and 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 you know because we we you know who's gonna revolt Greta Thunberg? I mean, she's trying to make a noise, she's trying to make a difference. You have Extinction Rebellion, you have all these guys protesting, but something else needs to happen. We've got to create a step, a, a bridge. Between the, uh, between the present state, which is unsustainable, and the future, which we hope will be more sustainable, and we got to get people to see the light. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we've got to convince people that it's in the best interest of their children and their children's children, if they you know, actually want their children to have children, to do something differently. We got another uh, chat question here. Let me see what it says. Yeah, the question is how? Yeah, good question. Just bashing the rich and thinking they can change the system, isn't that also wishful thinking? We need to change, blah, 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 yes. We need, okay, so let me read this. The problem is, is all in the how. These ideas have been around for 150 years, just the number on that wagon, wagon has grown in the last 20 to 50 years. When everyone is brought into the game from entry-level workers to middle-class to the rich, just bashing the rich and thinking they can change the system at will, isn't that also wishful thinking? Well, it is wishful thinking. What else are we going to do? I mean, here's the thing. Things don't change because the dictator voluntarily gives up uh, their dictatorship. They change when there's pressure from movements. And these movements, which is beginning to happen, is going to be a movement of movements. It's basically all these movements coming together to make a difference. And, and, and that is, what, I mean, the farm, you know, you just saw in India, we've had this farm crisis movement thing, which in many ways is ridiculous. Why would a farmer sit there for three months outside in the heat? I mean, are they getting paid off to do that? Of course not. I mean, they're, they're obviously concerned about something. So how do you solve that problem? Like any other problem, what we really need to do and I was talking to, by the way, this is actually part of our thing is how do you actually understand the needs, the unmet needs of society? So we went back to jobs to be done. If you remember, jobs to be done was this uh, process te uh, technique that Clayton Christensen has been talking about for a while. But the guy who actually invented it was a guy named Anthony Alwick uh, from Stratagen. Uh, some, you know, in 2000 and something, he went to Clayton Christensen and said, hey, look, this is called outcome-driven innovation. You start with the job that the customer has to do, and then you design backwards to, that pro uh, to, the, to create the product that will meet that job. The, the, the customer will then hire your product to do that job. Well, why can't we do that for public services? Why can't we do that for citizens? What's the, why can't we do that for society? So in a sense, and I did a webinar on this, what are the ecosystematic or the ecosystem jobs to be done? Multi-stakeholder jobs to be done. 
is what we're calling it. So it's not just what the job to be done is for one consumer. And see, here's where business gets it wrong. In America, we have this false view that says, oh, we should run government like a business. And what, what, what do we mean by that? Well, if you look at a triangle, this goes back to Stuart Hart, right? Uh, if you look at the BOP, the base of the pyramid, nobody's serving that market. Why? Because it's not profitable, right? So we leave them alone. We don't even look at them. We only look at this one little segment here that is ready to pay for our products and we can make a lot of money off them. So that's the segment we're targeting, right? But the government doesn't have that luxury. The government actually is in the, in the job that the job of government is to actually help those guys at the base of the pyramid find their way out of poverty. That's a whole different job to be done. And how do you do that? So I'm actually trying to use the language of jobs to be done to create a vocabulary that we can talk about society's needs. And this is why we've got Anthony Ulwick. We've got a bunch of other people that we're trying to bring in, including Stuart Hart. Actually, he's an advisor to this too. By the way, Amit, you're an advisor to this thing now too. So can't escape now. <laughs> no, this is a public invitation and I accept it, but thank <laughs> okay. you. But we'll quickly yeah. move on to, yeah. the next, you know, like one very important aspect that you've said, and that was inequality. And when you talk about inequality, I think when you're talking about inequality of many kinds, it, it could be digital inequality, wealth inequality, or whatever. That, that is the fundamental reason that hate and conflict is also arising, uh, that gets manifested in many, many ways, that gets manifested in the politics that we are seeing today of uh, migration. We, we see that whole thing in politics of religion. Uh, how do we resolve this inequality is going to be one critical question. Yes, because if you really look at the whole thing in Britain, uh, that was probably Britain through inequality. The rise of Trump was driven through inequality that actually existed. It was a resentment against the system. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, we want to shove it under the carpet in many, many ways, but you have to realize that it was inequality in 3,000 odd or 2,400 counties in the United States, which was causing that angst. So how do we resolve this inequality? Because if we don't do it, we are not going to solve the world the way we anticipate it to be, or we want, we want to make a world a better place. Right. So inequality is, is not an accident. It's a design. It's, a, it's actually a design principle. You design your products, your society, and the way you work to create inequality. Why? Because you're creating value and wealth. That is actually how we define inequality. If you really look at what business schools are doing, when they're creating value, they're not talking about value for society. And so we've created a false economy that only creates a, uh, an economy for a few people. It's actually leaving out the vast majority of people. Think about it this way. You know what we define poverty as? Two bucks a day. Remember that? Who can live on two bucks a day? What joke is that? You live on two bucks a day, Mr. President. You know, then call, and, and who defined that level as two bucks a day? So when we say, oh, we have lifted millions of people out of poverty because they're making two bucks and two cents a day. That's a joke. So inequality is actually a structural, it's actually violence. And that's what inequality is. If you look at the colonial vocabulary, of what is inequality? Inequality is actually rape. It's mm. basically exploitation of people who are defenseless to you know, take advantage of them. That's what Africa has been. That's what the Chinese are kind of doing in Africa now. They're just doing it in a little more velvet glove kind of way, instead of just beating you on the head. Like, hey, we'll build your port infrastructure and oh, if you can't afford it, now it's our port. You know? uh, and by the way, that's part of now, part of our Silk Road that we're building across uh, the world. So we actually have structural, uh, cultural, and uh, if, you, if you go to my website at christiansarkar.com, you'll see two triangles. One's, one's the triangle of hate. It's called the pyramid of hate, which is how do you escalate things to make things worse and worse? To, uh, you start off by name calling and these guys are different from us. They're bad for, you know, and, and ways to divide and polarize people. Phil Kaufman and I actually came up with a pyramid of love, which says, okay, how do you actually bring people together? And we've basically mirrored that same a pyramid of hate to say, you can actually nurture cooperation. You actually can nurture a better world if our leaders are serious. But who are our leaders? Our leaders aren't elected because they're such great people. They're elected because they're good at winning elections. And that takes a, that's a whole different skill set. That has nothing to do with virtuous 
anything. It just has to do with, hey, I'm good at uh, you know shuffling the votes and figuring out how to play this game. In in the U.S., it's it's defined by who gets the most, uh, who's able to raise funds. I mean, just to run for president, you need a billion dollars. Are you going to get a billion dollars to run? No. So what do you got to do to get that million dollars? You got to be a friend of the big guys. You got to be friends with the. You got to basically be a puppet. So all of a sudden, you find that our politicians are actually powerless. So Christian, what... <laughs> have I have I messed up messed up your business uh, view of the world here a little bit? No, yeah. not at all. In fact, uh, somehow I have to be, uh, I'm in sync with you. I do not know if you've seen my recent uh, work with the Bertelsmann Foundation. I, I did a book on uh, disrupting I'm democracies uh, okay. and th that's where I am actually talking about inequality and that's where it, you're hinting at. But having said that, uh, you, you know, like you, you're hinting at a very big problem. Like when you're saying that politicians will actually be working in cahoots with the rich people. Uh, how do you resolve that problem then? Because you will anyways need money for elections. Uh, and so, so here's how you solve it. First of all, you take money out of elections. How do you do that? By saying, you know what? Elections are publicly funded. That happens in Canada. Two, corporations aren't allowed to vote by giving funds to candidates. That happens in Canada, for example. It's illegal for a corporation to donate money to a, a candidate. Third, uh, all monies that are donated to anybody are transparent. So that changes the equation in India, for example, where it's all a black box, nobody gets to see who's donating, or in the US where it's all dark money. Supreme Court in, in, in the US has decided that it's okay to have dark money and, and have endless contributions. So China, Saudi Arabia tomorrow could be funding candidates. And we don't know it because it's totally dark. We have no idea and that's legal. So these kinds of systems have been put in place by unethical, unscrupulous people. It's just a fact. This, I mean, no one is gonna doubt that. What is in doubt is, is the later parts, okay? What is my ideology? What is your ideology? We, we, you know, we have differences of opinion on stuff, that's okay. But what we do need is respect. Without respect, see democracy, democracy doesn't work when one side says, well, I'm taking my football and going home and I don't want to talk to you. How do you play football? How do you play cricket? You respect your opponent, you do the best you can and you play the game. But the rules of the game have to be fair. That's it. Well, guess what? It's not fair. We hate our opponent and we don't even want to play with them. You know, we, we're just going to have a single party team. You know, I'm playing cricket against myself. That's sort of a single party uh, politics. Yeah. But Christian, what you're saying is very powerful. Like you take away funding from politics, but that'll itself have to be done by the politicians and the rich. What will and that, you know, it, it, it's going to happen when people are educated enough to go, we are not going to stand for this anymore. So if you look, okay, what countries has this happened in, right? So you can look at Nordic capitalism. So Denmark, Sweden, all those guys, you know, Norway, now they have an oil fund, you know, for example, Norway does that has padded a lot of this stuff. You know, they've had some sources of wealth for the entire society, but the difference is they didn't put the wealth from the North Sea into the pockets of ExxonMobil. They put the wealth into their own country. You see the difference? It was, it was basically public value that they created, which was shared with the entire country as opposed to private value where you know, the extractive stuff that they, that they did went into the pockets of a few executives at ExxonMobil and their shareholders, which is the traditional capitalistic model. So it is possible to have a for-profit public value-based uh, structure. So we, it's a long story. I mean, we can, we can go on forever, but I do think, and if you look at what Phil, Phil has written two books, one called Democracy in Decline and the other one Confronting Capitalism, this is how I met Phil, by the way, is on, on, and this was about five, six years ago on, on exactly this. We were talking about, okay, what needs to be done to stop this madness? Because the world is falling apart. And you know, if you look at the history of mankind, we're now in the process of democracy is in decline across the planet. People are saying democracy doesn't even work. But the real question is, have we actually tried democracy? The US has never really been a democracy. That's the ultimate irony of, of, of it all. It's actually a republic where they choose 
people who then choose people who then sort of elect. And there are all these rules that make sure that only you know, two parties can run. So it's, it's pretty rigged. And that's what Michael Porter's book's about. The, it's called, the, uh, what's it called? The Politics Industry. And he says, these five forces that we know about, they work really well. And look at the, how it works in the uh, uh, political industry in the US, it's a duopoly. So again, you have uh, a small group of companies, politicians, political parties that control everything. So let's distribute that power, which comes back to Peter Drucker, which is how do you distribute power? So it's no longer one guy with all the power, but you know, 500 companies that have the power. 500 politicians, regional powers that have more power, not one big central government that bosses everybody. Everything has to be much more local. And that is really the check and the balance that you need in a democracy. You can't have, even in a democracy or a capitalist or a communist state or a you know, Chinese democracy, whatever that is, you can't have one guy, you know, king for life. And, and his buddies, you know, one CCP, you know, or CCCP, it doesn't matter, right? It's the same, same story. It's just, it's just the goons, you know, the thugs filling my pockets. My kid's going to Harvard, you know, we're going to party on the French Riviera and, 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 and the world goes, goes down the drain. So uh, on that cheery note, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, so I I'm think, only half kidding, yeah. No, but I think very, very powerful sets of ideas, uh, Christian here, but then, one last bit that I would yeah. like to ask you. Chalo. How do you think people like us who are listening to the conversation can, can do anything? Yeah. Can be part of this movement? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, if you look at Bill Gates's book, okay, I was reading his climate change book. He's got all the salute. This guy's a smart fellow, right? But guess what? He doesn't look at something outside the boundary that says, what if I'm part of the problem? He doesn't look at that part. But what he does say is, with something which I would say is, why do all the gundas of the world have to run for politics? Why do we never create our own sort of env uh, environment in our, because we're selfish. We don't have time for that. We don't wanna do anything. It's too much jamela. It's much easier to go earn your money and go party than actually give back and actually work hard and almost without pay, right? To make a difference in your community. And yet, that is where we lack. You know, our philanthropic uh, sort of spirit in India is quite lacking. And I mean that at the individual level because we're very selfish. We've been taught, and this is what our schools are teaching us, go to school, work for a foreign company, make the bucks in, in you know, make the US dollars, spend them in India, and you're living like a king. And that's sort of the, the formula. And of course, you gotta be a hedge fund manager or investment banker, Maybe a doctor or lawyer now, but you know, really hedge fund and uh, you know, investment banker. That's what you got to be. Those are the most corrupt industries in the world. I mean, you know, if you look at who's 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 funding the most fossil fuel sort of based uh, projects in the world today, same guys who funded the Super League, J.P. Morgan Chase. So, so we we do have a fundamental problem, but it it starts small. It starts in your locality. And, and see, the other thing is, it's not just the individual that needs to change, right? So you say, okay, Earth Day is coming. Tomorrow's Earth Day, right? What are you going to do for Earth Day? So people go, oh, as an individual, I can't do much. I can recycle my stuff. I can do this, but nothing's going to change. So forget it, right? Okay. First of all, 50% of the garbage in the world comes from wastage of food, comes from individuals. So half the crap in, in the landfill is yours and mine. Second, okay, so let's, so at an individual level, there is a lot we can do if you organize. Organize it at your neighborhood level, organize it at your community level, state level, national level, then world level. So you have five levels really that we can do make a difference at. Usually we pick one, don't do so well and give up. But here's what's happening. Our children are a lot smarter than us. They're gonna, they're gonna organize this st stuff. It's just gonna be too late for them. So what we have to do is figure out a way to cross generations and say, you know what? I'm gonna work with the old, the young, everybody who cares to try to figure out a way to make this thing work. And, I, and, and whether you're in India or Nigeria or Haiti, you can make a difference. And 
Remember, it only takes about four or five percent of committed people to make a difference in a society. And that's how actually, how many people are there running the country? I mean, in terms of, it's just, I said, 200 people running the world. Mm -hmm. So okay. it, you can make a difference. You just gotta say, you know, I'm gonna stick the course. And hopefully I won't get blown up. So there is a threat here too. You know, the lady who did the investigative journalism on the Panama Papers? You know what happened to her, right? No. About a year and a half after the Panama Papers came out, her car was blown up in Malta with her in it. So that is another sort of way in which we're kept in check. People, you know, so we don't name names except for Bill Gates because he's a nice guy. You know, we can name him. He will probably won't blow us, blow us up. But you know what I'm saying? So we've got to find ways to create structures that are local. And this is where India can make a huge difference, okay? Instead of business schools teaching us how to go work for a large company, what if we learned how to be entrepreneurs? Indians are great entrepreneurs once they leave the country. Why can't we be entrepreneurs in the country? Usually it's because of the, you know, the, the BS, you have to do just to form a business, the state laws, you know, all the taxation stuff. What if everybody paid their taxes in India? What if everybody was blockchained and every, everything was sort of a transparent thing where you could see everything? The gundas wouldn't like it, but you know, the government could do that. If the government said, hey, you know what? You know, all this gold ingots that you've got hidden in the bunker under in your backyard, Mr. Politician, all those things that you can't bring them back into the economy. You can eat them, but you can't do anything else with them. Now what happens? So there are ways, see the thing here is people think, oh, we can't do anything. There's lots of ways. I'll give you another example. In the US, you know, one of the biggest forms of corruption is, is our army. That Pentagon eats, we, the, the budget of the US army, it, if you look at the budget, half, this is the US army, this is the rest of the world. That's the budget. And, and yet we can't compete with the Chinese and, and the, why? Because it's going into the hands of uh, pockets of all these, you know, companies that are making money, $200 hammers. That's just the, you know, the tip of it. So how do you fix that? You know, in, in the corporate world, you can run things as a business, right? You say, hey, you know, we don't know what the budget's gonna be like. So this year, you're gonna do a zero-based budget. You're gonna tell us everything you need to, uh, you know, budget for this year. You're gonna write down on a piece of paper and tell us, justify it. And then you, we're gonna give you your budget based on the zero-based budget. What if we did that with the Pentagon tomorrow? It said, you know, all these trillions of dollars that you've spent, all canceled, start from scratch. Give us this next year's budget, put it on a piece of paper, everything that you wanna do and we'll approve it or disapprove it. So Christian- No, one, no one's gonna do that, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But this has just been such a fascinating conversation. And I do take what you're saying that there is a lot of hope that we can actually change to from the young uh, from the next generation, they can bring about that change. There are ways in which we can change. And of course, we've had some great people or good people like Bill Gates who've had huge philanthropic uh, investments made or donations made. So there Even are- the vaccines. Look okay. at how fast we develop these vaccines. So if we do want to do stuff, we can. Absolutely. So there is hope. We can bring that change. But the, as all good things have to come to an end, this yeah. has just been a fascinating conversation. Thanks, we could have Thanks. gone on for hours. Yeah. Uh, but then I, I think uh, we will get on to another conversation uh, sometime in the near future. But thanks a lot for joining. And I would request all the others who are there with us to join us for the next episode next week, where we have Michael and Wright, and we actually talk about something very fascinating following up from what Christian has been talking about. And that is on globalization for better and for worse. Christian, thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks so much. Wicked7.org. Yeah. Absolutely. Have a look. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, man. Thanks.